Welcome, one and all, to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I am, as always, Tankel. Today, we are taking the leap. Um, Wade? Leap? What leap? You know, Tane, the one we were been talking about. Today, we're going to discuss the topic of Daubert in criminal cases. Oh, that leap. Whew, I'm a little, <laughs> a little relieved. Um, so let me just get this out there at the beginning. We are probably the furthest thing from experts on this topic that exists in the entire world. Um We've discussed all sorts of ideas on how we might address this topic and who, who we, we might, might who we might call as an FOP to help us with this. And we finally just gave up and decided to talk about it ourselves, mainly because we got turned down by almost as many people as I got turned down going to go to the prom. So uh, that's a lot. Yeah, it was really a lot of people who said no. So anyway. So once again, we, we owe a big shout out to FOP Judge Ben Studdard. Yeah, he made ben. a presentation to our winter conference for Superior Court judges, and he prepared some materials that helped us understand Dalbert, quite frankly. And uh, as always, once again, the shout out rule comes into play here. So now that we've thanked Judge Stuttered and said that he is the best, we're covered, Wade. All our plagiarism is absolved. So we hope, Tane, that this is not going to be a news flash to anybody. We really hope so. But there was a major change major. to the evidence rules that came into effect on July 1, 2022. That's right. OCGA Section 24-7-702. Every time a statute is cited, an angel gets his wings. That statute was rewritten to provide that the Daubert standard applies to expert testimony in all Georgia cases, no longer just civil cases. How did that other person say Daubert? Dober. Dober. <laughs> I heard somebody say that one time I was Don't fell out that. of my chair. Don't I was like, say Dober. We're in the South, man. We, it's, it's Daubert. Not even the South of France. Well, and, and it was hilarious because at one point I heard somebody say, I actually know these people and it's Daubert. <laughs> <laughs> so the new statute provided that Daubert would be the applicable standard and shall apply to any motion made or hearing or trial commenced on or after July 1, 22. Thou shalt apply Daubert. So previously, expert testimony, Tane, as you know, had been governed by 707, which was the old Harper standard. Right. So as of July 1, 22, Harper is no longer the applicable standard in criminal cases. R.I.P. Harper. All determinations on the admissibility of expert testimony is now subject to the Daubert standard, regardless of whether the case is criminal or civil. And and let me just say, that kind of makes sense. I mean, it really never made sense to me that you had a much higher expert testimony standard in civil cases than you did in cases where people might be subject to, oh, let's say the death penalty or life in prison. Just makes a little sense to me. Justice Peterson. Worried about all this equal protection stuff. My buddy, friend friend of the podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Justice Peterson. Yeah. Um, So, Tane, I think I have finally figured out why you and I know so little about Daubert. Does it have to do with our IQ? No, not our IQ. Oh, good. We're, we're plenty smart to understand Daubert. Okay, good. It's our age. Oh, yeah? Yeah, another thing we're really not in control of. Yeah. Um, the Daubert decision was not issued, Tane, until 1993. 
Oh, it's recent case law. <laughs> well, it's both of us had completed law school by then. Definitely. And so we didn't learn it in law school. It wasn't a thing. Right. It wasn't a thing to be learned. It's not like we didn't learn it because there's plenty of things that were things that we didn't learn. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah. this wasn't a thing to be learned. I mean, Paul's graph had just been decided when we were in <laughs> law school. So. Yeah, we're not that old. <laughs> but um, I got to tell you, Wade, every single day I get one step closer to being the get off my lawn guy. I really do. <laughs> it really is bad. Get off my lawn, you crazy kids. <laughs> Your voices. I know. So it's it's going to come to a surprise to nobody that there are no Georgia criminal appellate cases relating to Daubert because it wasn't the law until July of 22. Right. So I bet there are a bunch of them in the pipeline, Tane, and there just aren't any decisions that we can say, by golly, this is the Georgia point. And that requires us to go back, Tane, into the evidence time machine. Oh, wow, the Wayback Machine. So back to way back in 2013 when these changes became relevant. And, and tell everybody what Professor Millich said. Yeah, so Professor Millich said, I wish I could do Professor Millich's voice, but I can't. <laughs> As stated in the preamble to the new code, it is the intent of the General Assembly in enacting this act to adopt the federal rules of evidence as interpreted by the Supreme Court of the United States and the United States Circuit Courts of Appeal as of January 1st, 2013, to the extent that such interpretation is consistent with the Constitution of Georgia, where conflicts were found to exist among the decisions of the various Circuit Courts of Appeal Interpreting the federal rules of evidence, the General Assembly considered the decisions of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So in other words, the, 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 the shorthand reference is, if there is no Georgia law on this point, look to the federal, look to the federal authorities, because we, we largely track their rules, but start with the 11th Circuit. Right. And certainly where there's any disagreement among the circuits, the 11th Circuit is the controlling authority. So we we tell you all this law and leaned tur- treatise stuff, leaned tourist, leaned leaned tourist stuff, learned treatise. Okay, that too. To make a larger point, Tane, we are instructed to look first at that Eleventh Circuit law when there are disagreements among the circuits, and or when there is no Georgia law on point. Now, the Georgia Supreme Court made a statement on this exact same point, and uh, when they decided State versus Almanza. And that that is not that was a case dealing with a hearsay topic, but this is one of the first times after 2013 when they made it clear, hey guys, th- this is what we mean. They said that having found a federal rule of evidence using material uh, materially identical language to our local Georgia rule, at this in this case it was 8034, the question of whether to apply state or federal precedent ends. We look to federal precedent until a Georgia appellate court decides the issue under the, our new code. Because the state rule mirrors, in this case, 8034, it is now read and interpreted, or as interpreted, by the federal appellate courts as of the effective date of Georgia's new evidence code. In other words, we don't have anything in Georgia. We look to the federal precedent, pref- preferably the 11th Circuit, 
once once our cases start getting decided, we can look at our own law again. But until then, we need to look at that precedent. Yeah, I mean, as you might imagine, there's little federal law on topics such as the admissibility of DUI field sobriety tests or other criminal issues that come before our courts on a regular basis. I mean, they do not have many federal DUI cases. Don't believe us? Consider this quote from a federal case. Because intoxicated driving offenses are generally state offenses that are tried only in federal courts under limited circumstances, federal case law on the admissibility of field sobriety tests is sparse. What an understatement. <laughs> That's an understatement. I tell you what, I do some work with the probate judges. Imagine that the, the, if you if you think DUI law is pretty sparse in federal courts, go find some law on speed detection equipment. Yeah, I can only Zero. imagine. Right, right. So we have decided against giving our loyal listeners a full history lesson on Daubert and how it became a thing back in 1993. We don't want our listeners to go into law school flashback shock for hearing things like the Fry standard. Please, let's don't go back there. (laughs) So we all use, Tane, the phrase the Daubert standard sort of as a shorthand, but it's kind of a misnomer. Tell the folks about that. Yeah, the standard applicable to the admission of expert testimony really stems from several different cases. Uh, There is Daubert, which is actually the case of Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals, Inc., uh, also, the case of General Electric versus Joiner, and then finally the case of Kumo Tire Company Limited versus Carmichael. The sites of all of those, of course, are included in our outline at GoodJudgePod.com. They're actually in body of seven hundred two, Tane. Yeah, that's true. I mean, true. they actually cite. It's kind of weird to that's see right. a case cited in the statute. But they collectively form this thing that you and I are going to call the Daubert standard. That's okay? right. And, and it's commonly called the Daubert standard, not only here, but also in federal law other, as well. Other learned groups do that too? That's right. <laughs> so we have avoided getting into the nuts and bolts of Daubert long enough, Tane. Let's, let's take that dive we were talking about. Let's dive in. Let's leap. So what is Daubert, Tane? All right. So Daubert demands that the trial judge, judge act as a gatekeeper to decide what expert testimony is admissible and what is inadmissible. That term gatekeeper comes up a great deal in cases where Daubert is addressed. And folks, Daubert came about as a result of a bunch of junk science. I mean, that's really where it came from is courts were hearing, admitting all kinds of quote unquote expert testimony and letting juries hear about it. And there was this push to make it standardized as to what things could be heard in court as quote expert testimony and what wasn't going to be heard. And so essentially that's where Daubert came from. And if you, if you really are get nerded out on this and you want to look at how this came about and all that, you'll see a lot of the dissenting opinions, including one, one from Rehnquist, which said, we're very concerned that trial judges are going to have to become amateur scientists. That was a little bit uh, prescient, I guess that, that because I think that there are some judges that think that's what is expected of them. But regardless, like Tane said, this was all about trying to keep out junk science. That's right. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. 
We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So going back to this this role of gatekeeper, um, in that role as gatekeeper, the trial judge is expected to protect the finder of fact from, as I said, junk science or other irrelevant or unreliable expert testimony. You're going to hear that gatekeeper phrase a lot. That's right. And and basically, the judge is just the initial arbiter of whether it should be revealed to the trier of fact. Right. The expert's testimony. Yeah. So to make the gatekeeper determination, the trial judge basically should ask him or herself four questions. And these are borrowed from Judge Stuttered. But the first question is, number one, is the evidence relevant? I mean, that's sort of a a determination in every uh, gatekeeping function of the trial court. But first, is the evidence relevant? Second, is the methodology reliable? Third, are the conclusions based on sufficient scientific facts or data? And fourth, is the witness qualified? In other words, qualified to testify about the data, the methodology, and the relevant evidence, uh, as well as whatever the other findings are. Now, Rule 702 does not change the fact that an expert can be qualified to render an opinion, an expert opinion, based upon his or her knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education. Those are still the things that that, that doesn't change. That's still the, the standard. That's right. Frankly, uh, cases on Daubert sometimes frame the issue a little differently, but there are usually three or four elements in the list of issues associated with the Daubert analysis. Cases from the 11th Circuit, as opposed to Judge Stutter's list, generally describe the applicable test a little differently from Judge Stutter, but they reach the same result. Number one, they say, the expert is qualified to testify competently regarding the matters he intends to address. Two, the methodology, same as Judge Stutter by which the expert reaches his conclusion is sufficiently reliable as determined by the sort of inquiry mandated by Daubert. And then three, the testimony assists the trier of fact through the application of scientific, technical, or specialized expertise to understand the evidence or to determine a fact and issue. And then the 11th Circuit also just remind us there's always the fourth obligation, which is that 403 balancing test requirement that is applicable to all evidence. That's right. And, you know, that's something that we repeat all the time when we're talking about evidentiary issues. But don't forget 403. You got to say, is its probative value outweighed by its potential prejudice? Now, Tame, when we look at these factors, whether it's Judge Stuttered's list or it's 11th Circuit list, Basically, I think we all understand, is the evidence relevant? Is the methodology reliable? I think that's where we're going to get hung. Yeah, that's the sticky part of it. And so there is a sort of non-exhaustive and non-mandatory list of reliability factors when making this reliability determination. Um, the court sets, or the rule sets out, number one, um, testability. In other words, is, is this something that is testable, that w- what the expert is, is talking about? Number two, what's the rate of error? In other words, how, how do we measure whether it's reliable on a scientific basis or not? Number three, 
peer review and publication. Now, as Wade and I have talked about, not everything's subject to peer review and publication. For example, uh, treating physician testimony and opinions about uh, you know the mechanism of injury may not be subject to peer review, but that's something you can you can take into account. Uh, number four, general acceptance in the scientific community. That's that's going to come into play for things like. Uh, fingerprints and ballistics and and DNA and all of those kinds of tests. And then five, uh, does the analysis fit the data? So the reason these reliability factors are not mandatory is because not everything that is maybe potentially an expert testimony is subject to things like peer review. Sure. And though, I mean, imagine if you had some case where the welds are in question and there's a question about liability for bad welding or something. I'm just throwing something out there. I love a good welding case. And so that's not going to be subject to peer review. Right. Well, that, get a, get another welder in there and go, yeah, that's crappy. Yeah. But, but they don't usually <laughs> write those in like articles. I wrote it in welder weekly. <laughs> it's terrible. So I just want you to understand, yes, all this law is out there, and you should consider these things if it is potentially relevant to the kind of science you're talking about. That's right. The courts have the discretion that they need to avoid unnecessary what they call reliable reliability proceedings, where the reliability of an expert's methods or property taken or already have been properly considered or, or taken for granted. In other words, they've already been decided. These are going to be the kinds of things that we talked about in some of our DUI episodes, Tane, concerning field sobriety tests. There is existing case law that says, for example, you mentioned fingerprints, that fingerprint evidence, if properly done, is, science, is sufficiently scientific to be admitted to the jury. Same thing with, like, they, they've said, like, for example, the walk and turn test that that is not scientific at all. That is an observation of, I guess, traits of people who are intoxicated. That's right. But and things that's like, already been decided. But things like DNA, I mean, that that's you know, scientifically accepted, and, and, and those, are, those cases are out there. And in the citation that we have on the paper, where can they find the paper, Tank? At goodjudgepod.com. It's, it's, we've got that list that we completely stole from Judge Stutter. Yeah. But we gave him a shout out. Shout out. It's all good. Um, it's important to remember a couple things about Daubert. Uh, a pretrial Daubert hearing is only required where a challenge is raised. And the challenge does not necessarily have to be raised pretrial. So understand, I mean, and this is, you know, every, every trial judge out there is rolling their eyes about this. Somebody can raise a challenge to an expert's testimony under Daubert right in the middle of trial and you may have to stop and have a Daubert proceeding uh, in the middle of trial. Trier facts are always free to accept or reject the testimony of it, any witness, expert or otherwise. We've probably both given that charge 112 times. At least. Um, that is not the determination that a trial judge is being asked to be made uh, as a part of a Daubert gatekeeping function. Whether to accept the testimony or place any value in it, that's up to the trier of fact, Tane. Right. You're just the gatekeeper. You're just deciding whether they get in the door or not, not whether you believe them or whether the jury should believe them. Not all expert testimony is quote unquote scientific. Some of it may just be technical. And it 
some reason it may be beyond the kin of the ad- average juror. We've talked about that phrase about a hundred times. Sure, I mean that's the that's the standard, uh, the the old go to standard. So the trial judge is the gatekeeper and is not expected to make any comparison between competing experts. That's right. Where the methodology utilized by the expert is valid, but there is a difference of opinion as to what conclusions can be drawn from that otherwise valid testing procedure, such arguments are the basis for cross-examination and should not prevent the opinion from being admitted. In most cases, and this is a quote from a case, in most cases, objections to the inadequacies of the study are more more appropriately considered an objection going to the weight of the evidence than its admissibility. It's not a part of the trial judge's gatekeeping function, as we've said, to weigh credibility of competing experts or to attempt to evaluate the persuasiveness of competing scientific studies. Instead, the gatekeeping function of the trial judge is to determine whether the experts' methods and results were discernible and, quote, rooted in real science. If that threshold is met by the expert, the testimony should be admitted for whatever weight and credit the trier of fact chooses to give it and subjected to the rigors of cross-examination and potentially maybe a counter-opinion from the other side's expert. Yeah, I mean, let's go back to the original purpose and remember the original purpose. It's to prevent the presentation of what's been commonly called junk science or things that is that are the opposite of science, essentially. So the one thing that is clear from the change to the Daubert standard in criminal cases in Georgia is that the parties seeking to introduce expert testimony, whichever side it is, are going to be required to present much more foundational evidence tain and spend time in that foundation than they have been accustomed to in the past, at least until we get some Georgia appellate decisions on, on these points. That's right. So let us give you some suggestions if you're going to be ruling on something under Daubert. If you're ruling on a Daubert challenge, make sure that your order references, whatever order you uh, have on that, references your function as a gatekeeper. I, you know, using that phrase probably would show that you at least have some passing familiarity with Daubert. You need to note that you considered factors. Now, the factors could be phrased in probably one of 10 different ways. But regardless of how you reference them, the factors should include qualifications of the expert, the methodology used by the expert. And its reliability. And its reliability, correct. The testimony is finds a, some sort of finding that it is relevant and will assist the trier of fact. And you have to do a four or three balancing test. If you do an order that says you considered those things, I I don't think this is going to be I think people have freaked out because it's different not because it's hard. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think for us in superior court who haven't done that many civil cases in some jurisdictions over the past several years where the Daubert standard has come into play, I think people are just a little bit afraid of it and, and you don't have to be. If you use those four things, um that's something that we shouldn't be afraid of. So we've got some examples in the paper tain and and their DUI cases and fingerprints and all of that. We're not going to go through all that here right. because we think that people need if, they, if if you have some particular issue, look it up and see if we've got any Georgia cases on it. They're very very few, and most of them are going to require you to cite that law that says once a court has determined that certain um, science is reliable that it doesn't have to be reestablished all the time. Right. And we've got some of those cases out there and we've got some of those DUI cases out there dealing with um, 
the the fact that that HGN is scientific, but that walk and turn and one leg stands just a, a psychomotor test. Okay, right. We've but they're got fun, that in there, regardless of how fun those tests are <laughs> and fun videos to watch. Still, I, I saw one of those going on like at ten o'clock in the morning the other day, and I'm like, y'all need to stop. <laughs> it's ten in the morning. Go to work. Anyway, that's all for our, our episode dealing with Daubert. We hope you're not upset that we didn't go way down the rabbit hole and talk about all the individual types of cases yeah, where Daubert frankly, could be relevant. Frankly, we were completely incapable of doing that. I'm yeah. just going to be honest There's with that you. too. Yeah. But I don't know how helpful that would be because if you have a case dealing with a particular kind of science – then you need to go do that research. And unfortunately you have to spend time in the 11th circuit doing it. And I'm telling you, there's very little law. Sure. Well, folks, as always, we're going to be awaiting appellate decisions on these issues with great anticipation, but you can always count on the good judgment podcast to share the important Daubert decisions as they come from the, the appellate court. I feel like we're doing the news. You can always count on us to bring you the Channel two action news. We will try to make sure that we announce any important flash episodes. We'll try to do that on our LinkedIn page that if, if some case comes out on this topic, we'll try to make sure that we notify everybody on LinkedIn. We just can't be on all the different forms of social media. So we've kind of had to narrow it down. We've got a, we've got a website that you can come to us. We're doing some stuff on LinkedIn. We, we really feel like that's about all we can do. Yeah, we're, we're not teenagers. We, we can't be on all the social platforms. Get off my lawn, kids. <laughs> Get off my lawn. All right, folks, the outline is full of statutory and case citations, and that outline, as always, can be found at goodjudgepod.com. Reach out to us on goodjudgepod at gmail.com for all your podcast ideas from topics that we can steal from you. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. In a Rolling Stone magazine named their 100 Greatest Artists of All Time and listed the following people people as their top three selections. Number one, Elvis Presley. Couldn't agree more. Number two, the Rolling Stones. Absolutely. And number three, the Beatles. Man, I bet Taylor Swift was pissed. I, you know what I bet, though? She probably just shook it off and said, haters gonna hate. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. 
Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell.